today I want to talk about uh, change and how we can go about effecting positive, healing, productive, helpful change in our lives and why it can be so difficult for us to create lasting change for ourselves. So I'm going to give it just a minute to see if people jump on the live broadcast. Again, if you're watching by replay, I appreciate that. Hope everybody's doing well. All right. So one of the phrases from the Bible that when I first started to uh, open up about my own traumas, and when I say open up about my own traumas, I'm talking about opening up to myself Uh, Because we have a tendency when it comes to trauma, when it comes to negative experiences that have impacted our lives and helped shape who we are, we have a tendency to block those things off from ourselves and just go about our daily lives. For a lot of people, they live primarily in their heads, uh, totally disconnected from their bodies. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. Um a lot of people live in sort of a dissociative state, especially if they've had a lot of trauma, where they're not really fully present in the moment. In other words, the present moment is uncomfortable, and so we escape the present moment by obsessing over um, various different things. It could be uh, an obsession with the future. We're escaping the present moment because our minds are constantly on something either positive that we want in the future but haven't got yet or something negative in the future that we're worried about happening. <laughs> uh, so we, we're obsessing over worry or obsessing over some kind of incident. For a lot of people, we obsess over our past and escape the present moment that way. And uh, there can just be lots of different things that we do to deal with unpleasant realities. And there was a Bible verse when I first started going through this process myself in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus shows up in his hometown and reads from Isaiah 61 and announces that he is the Messiah to the people that he grew up with. And he says to them, surely you will say to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. And that kept rolling around in my spirit. That kept rolling around in my mind. You know, physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. And I realized that I needed to become my top project (laughs) that I was working on uh, healing, that I was working on growing, that I was working on bettering, transforming. This is how I got into alchemy. Uh, The ancient idea of alchemy is to change base metal into precious metal, or the common analogy is lead into gold. But that was just a metaphor for transforming oneself, for being able to take the base materials of our lives. You could call it the suck that's in our lives. You could call it the pain that's in our lives, the hurt that's in our lives, the negativity that's in our lives, and learning how to take ourselves, our own consciousness, our own being through a meta. Uh, Yeah, a metaphysical process, but really the word I was looking for was an alchemical process where we transform those things into something that makes our life more resourceful, that makes our life more enriching. And this whole idea of doing stuff with ourself is really, really interesting. I saw a post last night 
where someone was talking about loving ourselves. And we talk about that a lot, right? I need to learn to love myself or I need to love myself or loving yourself is what Houston would say is the greatest love of all. Right. And there's a lot of truth to that, but I always find it interesting when we talk about this stuff, who's the I and who's the self. Uh, I need to love myself. So who's the I? What's the part of me? In other words, if we break this down, what's the part of me that's giving love? And to what part of me is that love being given? Who's the giver and who's the receiver? And if we think about it further, we can think, okay, if I have a part of me that's giving love to another part of me, then the question becomes, is the part of me that's giving the love also being loved? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? And I talked last week about having a core self or having an executive self, having a base sense of self. So if we're going to talk about healing ourselves or we're going to talk about changing ourselves, we need to identify our sense of self. What is our sense of self? Where does our sense of self come from? How do we know who we are? You hear people say that, too. I don't know who I am, or I need to get to know myself, or I need to do some self-improvement, all that kind of stuff. And my presupposition in this uh, teaching is that lasting change that really produces benefits and quality for ourselves and for our lives has to come from within us. In other words, no one can effectively change us. <laughs> we have to um, work on that inside ourselves. And so a lot of information to cover. Um, let's see. Somebody says, don't see you on YouTube yet. Um, and someone else says, great to watch you on YouTube. So, again, uh, just a reminder, I can see the comments, some of them. But when they come from Facebook, for some reason, I don't get... Um, to see who it is, it just says Facebook user. So, um, yeah. All right, so let's start with how do you have a sense of self? Where does your sense of self come from? Are you aware of your sense of self? And where does that sense of self come from? How was that part of you constructed? How was that part of you developed? Uh, What's the schema that you have? What's the blueprint that you have? What's the understanding that you have about yourself? Or what is your sense of self? And it's really simple. It comes down to one thing. It comes down to memory or memories. We're able to tell people who we are because we have a memory of who we are. We're able to... uh, uh, know things about ourselves, what we're good at, what we're not good at, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, all based on memory. Uh, we know to go to work and what kind of job we do or what, if you don't have a job, the kind of things that you are involved in in your life all comes from memory. If we connect with somebody in a relationship and we share about ourselves, that sharing about ourselves is all a function of Memory. So let's talk about memory because that's where this starts. Now, memory is a complex thing in the brain and there are many different types 
of memories that science has been able to identify. We have short-term memory. We have long-term memory. Most people are familiar with that. We also have what's called reproducible memory and reconstructive memory. (laughs) And I want to focus on those last two, reproducible memory and reconstructed memory. Now, obviously, when it comes to short-term memory, long-term memory, our sense of self is based on our long-term memory. Uh, when we're telling our story, when we're talking about who we are, things of this nature, a lot of that is coming not from short-term memory, um, but it's coming from long-term memory, right? So if I were to ask you, difference between short-term memory and long-term memory, if I were to ask you, what did you eat for lunch yesterday? Uh, you probably would be able to tell me. What outfit did you wear yesterday? Uh, what activities did you engage in yesterday? And you'd be able to tell me, and you'd be able to tell me in quite some detail. I had uh, uh, some tacos, but they weren't as good as the last time. Or I made, you know, my favorite dish, but I forgot an ingredient. Or it tasted really good, didn't taste as good. I mean, in other words, we can have pretty detailed short-term memories. But those short-term memories don't get handed off or transferred into long-term memories unless they have definite emotional significance. If an event does not have emotional significance, in other words, it's mundane, it's daily, it's routine, it doesn't get handed off in from short-term memory into long-term memory. It doesn't pass the baton there. So if I were to ask you a question about something that happened to you years ago, could be a party that you went to, a person that you met, a job that you took, um, your favorite team winning the Super Bowl. Um, there's an emo- there's an emotion, there's a feeling that goes with that that attaches significance to the information that you got from that memory. And when there's emotional significance to a memory, it gets handed off to the long-term memory, and it becomes part of our schema. It becomes part of our self-schema. So how we know ourselves and how we talk about ourselves, for the most part, especially when it comes to change, is based on this long-term memory. And this long-term memory is 100% emotion. It's governed 100% by emotion. So the fact of the matter is, then, that our understanding of ourselves, our sense of self, our sense of who we are, comes from our emotions every bit as much, and I'll show you in a minute why more so than from our memories, why the feeling and the emotion is more important than the information that we call up from our memories. Now, let's talk about those other two types of memory that I talked about. Reproducible memory is part of the long-term memory, and these are things, and this memory is fairly accurate. So reproducible memory are those things that we recall that we are then able to reproduce. So, for example, I'm talking to you in the English language. (laughs) Now, I didn't come out of the womb. Nobody came out of the womb speaking a specific language. I had to learn the English language. And that English language is based 100% on memory. And so I'm able to talk to you. I'm able to reproduce the English language, not have to learn it every morning when I wake up, because it's stored in the long-term memory as reproducible memory. Brushing your teeth, 
walking, driving a car, performing your job, um, cleaning the house, all this stuff are things that we do from memory, from learnings that we received, and it's reproducible. But it's not especially emotional, if you know what I mean. In other words, we go through these routines and we do them over and over and over again, but they don't hold any special place inside of us. So while it's a part of long-term memory, it's not stored in the type of memory where we derive a lot of our sense of self. And certainly it's not part of the long-term memory out of which we derive things that we think are problems with us or that are causing us problems or difficulties within ourselves. That comes primarily from reconstructed memories. So a reconstructed memory would be, uh, okay, so it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm wearing my uh, Broncos <laughs> sweatshirt. And, uh, and I went through and I watched... Uh, because it's just a bummer being a Bronco fan. Uh, not as bad off as being a Raider fan today. You, you, guys, you got to have some compassion for Raiders fans today because uh, the Super Bowl is being held in their stadium in Las Vegas and probably their two most hated teams, their two biggest rivals, uh, San Francisco because they're from the Bay Area and the Kansas City Chiefs because they've been owning the division, the AFC West division. So that's how I make myself feel better. I made myself feel better by watching some of the old Broncos Super Bowl highlights from when they won and thinking about at least I'm not a Raiders fan today. (laughs) So if I were going to remember Super Bowl 50, last time the Broncos won the Super Bowl, and the events around that, I have to go into my memory, and I'm trying to reconstruct. I'm reconstructing that memory. Yeah, there's information there. Yeah, there's emotions there. Yeah, there are things that happened, but this is what scientists call reconstructive memory. It's not something that I'm reproducing every day, like the English language, driving a car, cooking, things like that. It's something that has emotional significance to me because I'm a Bronco fan, and that's the last time they won. And so I can remember, I think, the booth that I was sitting in, the direction that I was facing, because we went to a sports bar to watch the game. I can remember what was on the menu. I can remember what I was wearing. I think. Now, the problem is, is that because it's emotional, I'm wanting to bring in all these details, right? Like where I sat. Or here's another one. You know, where were you when the towers fell? If you're old enough to remember that. Where were you when the towers fell? If you're old enough to remember, where were you when the space shuttle blew up? Um, if you're old enough to remember, where were you when John F. Kennedy got shot or when Reagan got shot? Those are all memories that are layered with emotions. And those become stored and become part of our sense of self. So really, when we talk about your sense of self, what we're talking about is memory, and we're talking about emotion, and we're talking about um, information primarily. Information. Uh, it's all about information. So if you want to know who you are, <laughs> it's interesting, in formation, informed, inwardly formed. 
information. That's where this stuff comes from. Now, when it comes to reconstructed memories, the science is very clear that it is very malleable. That's how the scientific literature talks about it, that it's malleable, it's changeable, it's moldable, and that we don't remember it accurately, that we don't remember it clearly. So famous study that was done in the early 70s on eyewitness testimony where they uh, had people watch a scenario where two cars collided, and then they were asked later to reconstruct that event from memory, and then they tested it to see how accurate that was. And what they discovered was, because this was being done based solely, a study based solely on eyewitness testimony and its reliability in court, what they did was they asked the question in different ways. How fast was the, how fast were the cars going when they hit? How fast were the cars going when they smashed into one another? How fast were the cars going when they collided? How fast were the cars going when they slammed into each other? They used various different words, and the words that evoked a greater impact of the accident, words like when they smashed into each other, when they crashed into each other, when they slammed into each other, people gave an answer that the cars were going faster. If they said when they hit or when they collided, something like that, the answers were typically that they remembered the cars going slower. So the language that was used by the attorneys would impact the testimony of the person and their memory. Why? Because words convey meaning and words convey feelings And our long-term memory is based a lot on feeling and on emotions. Something else that's interesting about our sense of self that they've studied, done numerous studies on. People who pick their career or pick their major in college if they went to college or pick their life path often do it based on how they remember certain subjects that they studied in school. So I know, for example, that I avoided anything that required math, that required arithmetic, (laughs) because I had a belief about myself that I wasn't good at math. Um, So when I went back to school, it's like, I don't want to do math. I can't do math. I've told myself over and over again, I'm not good at math. I can't do math. I can only do basic math. I'm not good at this. And then not too long ago, I was going through some boxes that uh, of my mom's, not none of my mom's, of my own keepsakes that came from my mom. And I found uh, my ACT scores. I found some uh, report cards. And my belief has always been that I was more gifted in language, um, things like English, things like writing, things like communicating, talking, things of this nature, and less good at things like science and math. When I looked at my ACT scores, my ACT scores were higher in math and science than they were in English or history. That was quite a shock to me. On my report cards, there were times I got better grades, A's and B's in math, 
and got C's in English. In fact, I didn't really do well in English in school. Now, before you think that I'm an anomaly, <laughs> that I'm that I'm different from the norm, they've done studies on this and they've discovered that people who have negative experiences, uh in other words, I had a couple math teachers that I really didn't like. Uh the presentation of the information was boring, but my first math teacher thought I was bad at math. The first time I remember, my earliest memory of sitting in a math class is my math teacher yelling at me about how I'm doing my work. Yeah, they yelled at us back then in the 70s. I don't know if they yell now. I don't know what it's like school now, but back then. And I even had to go be evaluated to see if I needed special education in math. And that was a powerful emotional memory that formed a belief inside of me Obviously, I mean, how could it not that I wasn't good in math, that I was dumb when it came to numbers, that I was dumb when it came to math. And because I was fairly good at creative writing and I started writing stories at four or five, six years old and everybody affirmed how good I was at creative writing, it formed a belief inside of me that my intellectual capabilities and potential was greater in things like communication, writing and English and not so great in things like math and science. But the verifiable information, the reality is, is that I probably had a better aptitude for math and science than I did for English <laughs> and writing, or at least I had an aptitude for those things that I did not believe that I had. So I had a sense of self that was based on an emotional memory that was reconstructed, that was completely inaccurate to what happened, that then became information that I used to govern the choices that I would make about my life, and not just little choices, but big choices, like how I was going to spend my time, how I was going to be productive, how I was going to serve society, how I was going to make a living, how I was going to show up at work. Even to this day, how I help my kids with their homework, because they know if they have problems with math, that they need to do their math homework with their mom. <laughs> so in a sense, it did become a self-fulfilling prophecy, because I haven't used uh, any kind of equations or algebra or geometry much <clears throat> for the last, you know, 30, 35 years since I've last took a math class, whatever it's been. So I have lost a lot of that reproducible memory because I didn't reproduce it. I didn't keep using it. But I'm using this to illustrate how we get distorted ideas about ourselves and we get distorted ideas about our potentials because we have distorted ideas about what happened because our memories are not that accurate and they are influenced at least these kind of long-term memories are influenced a hundred percent by the feelings and the emotions that we had. I got lots of affirmation off the stories that I wrote. So I had a good feeling about myself when it came to writing my initial experiences with math were very negative. So I had a very negative feeling about myself when it came to math. So that became then a belief that said, I'm good at one and not good at the other, but yet I can go back and verify that that was not the case. Now, studies like this have been done, and this is something that people do. One study that was done was done on gender stereotypes and how gender stereotypes affect 
our memories and our sense of self. And what they discovered was that there is a gender stereotype that men are better at STEM than women, STEM subjects than women. And so that very frequently women will self-report that they did not do well in their STEM classes, but when they go back and check the grades on record, they discover that they actually did very well and even better than some of the boys in the STEM classes. But because of those gender beliefs and those gender stereotypes, they diminished their capabilities, their potential, and even the information around their performance. So what this means to us is, is that we can have a lot of negative beliefs about ourselves. We can have a lot of negative feelings about ourselves. We can have a lot of limiting beliefs about what we can accomplish, about who we are, about our potential, and all of it can be total crap. <laughs> all of it can be reconstructed, a, a reconstructed memory that is viewed through a distortion. All of it can be distorted information. And this is why it's important to realize that you can believe lies about yourself. Not everything that you believe about yourself or everything internally that you experience is going to be accurate information or information that tells you the truth about yourself. But it can feel very, very real. I would have swore on a stack of Bibles. I would have swore on my mother's grave that I was terrible in math all the way through school. Yet, I just dug up several report cards to prove to me that that's not the case. ACT scores that I took in, uh, when I was a senior in high school that proves to me that that was not the case. And yet, that belief persisted. I had that belief, I know I did as a senior because I was thinking, how can I avoid taking math classes when I was thinking about my major? But still, it's distorted information. So how many times do we limit ourselves? How many times do we take action? How many times do we react or respond in a relationship negatively or respond negatively to someone in our lives based on these self-schemas or this sense of self that is completely based on falsehood that is not accurate. Uh, one of the Facebook users says, I am an E-I-N-F-P. Uh, that's a Myers-Briggs uh, personality distinction. <coughs> and they said, I relate to this. The reason I'm pointing out that comment is because... Uh, I also am an E slash INFP. Depends on my mood, whether I test as an extrovert or an introvert in that study, but I almost always come out the NFP. <laughs> but that also, <laughs> that also is a self schema that's based upon how we remember ourselves, even the personality test itself. Thanks for bringing that up because it's a great, another great illustration. When you're taking those personality tests, you know, would you rather stay home and read a book by the fire? Or would you rather go out with, uh, rather go out to a party with, you know, 30 of your friends? Um, that's also based on this emotional stuff. Like I may actually get more energized when I'm around people but I may have enough negative experiences about my interactions with people that I have social anxiety. So even though I would really enjoy being out with those people because it gives me anxiety and I want to keep the anxiety at bay, I stay home and I read a book. <laughs> so then I say, I'd rather stay home and read a book. 
And so then the question becomes, am I a true introvert or am I allowing social anxiety and my, my social self to be governed by social anxiety based upon information that I have about negative experiences that I have with people? And I might as well go here. A lot of people have social anxiety based on three or four really crappy experiences that they had in their childhood, where they felt embarrassed, where they felt humiliated, where they felt ashamed. Some people have social anxiety. Uh, you know, one of the things that used to happen in PE classes, we used to pick teams, right? And if you were consistently picked as the last person on the team, you may or may not have been. You may have just been picked last a few times, or you get on somebody's team and everybody groans because you're on their team, and those are embarrassing experiences, those are shaming experiences, the thing gets incorporated into our sense of self and then gets played out in our interactions with people. So we have anxiety based on the fact that in one class, one area of our life, or maybe even just one sport, maybe you only got picked last for kickball, but you didn't get picked last for dodgeball in school. Or you got picked last for soccer, but you didn't get picked last for uh, football. But because those experiences, like let's just say maybe you were always picked last for kickball, right? But you didn't always play kickball. Sometimes you played dodgeball, and you weren't picked last for dodgeball. But you let those experiences shape and inform your your ability and your interactions with other people that then creates a memory of that, that then creates a belief that says, I'm not very good with people. I get anxious around people that then creates some social anxiety that then creates you taking a Myers-Briggs test and testing as an introvert. And now you say, well, I'm just an introvert. See how this stuff works? I mean, this stuff is so tricky. So here's the reality. Who you are, who you know yourself to be is based on the information that you've received that's been stored in your long-term memory based upon whatever emotions you were feeling. So your sense of self really comes from your feelings and the stories that you tell. So the language of the brain or the language of the mind is thoughts and the language of the body is feeling. And we have certain emotions that we feel in our body that then gets sent up through the vagus nerve to our brain. And then our brain creates a story around that to explain why that feeling is there. Or we can start telling ourselves a story in our mind. And then through the vagus nerve, that releases uh, information into our bodies. And we're feeling some kind of way about it. <laughs> And this is why change is hard, because in order for something to really change, if you want something in your life to really change, then <clears throat> you have to be able to get your mind and your body aligned, because behavior is what changes things. Acting on this world is what's going to change. Something in your life is never going to change until you take a different action than the action that you've been taking. So you may have the intention of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> doing something to improve your life. Excuse me one second. You may have the intention of doing something that's going to change your life, but you've got to get your body, your actions to come along with it. And what gets in the way is oftentimes we are incongruent or our minds and our bodies or our thoughts and our emotions are not aligned 
and are not connected and are not wired together. And so we don't find ourselves to take sustained action. We can do it for a week. We can do it for three weeks. We can do it for a month. Sometimes we can do it for even six months. But then we eventually oftentimes come back down to our baseline. The reality is you will always come back to your baseline unless something changes in your sense of self. And in order for something to change inside your sense of self, you have to get past an emotion and you have to get past the story that you're feeding yourself about that emotion. So let's start with this. Let's start with our memories about ourselves and about the events that happen in our lives and our beliefs about our potential and what we can do and what we can accomplish are not at all accurate. They are lying to us in some shape or form. It's important because we're relying on that information to make our decisions. I was relying on the information that I was bad at math to decide a career path. When the truth was I didn't enjoy math because I had some unpleasant experiences in math class. That would have been an accurate statement. I don't enjoy math. And if I would have had the self-awareness or someone to help me, I could have realized I don't enjoy math because these foundational experiences set the foundation emotionally and through information what I was going to feel every time I went to a math class. And if I could move past the emotion, then I could at least consider the possibility of going into a field that required math and have a better feeling about myself and my own self-efficacy that I could accomplish it. Because, But I believe the lie based on information, right? So we have to maybe stop taking that information about ourselves so seriously. We maybe need to quit defending our view of ourselves, our story, our point of view about what happened, our personal history. We need to understand that it may not be accurate and it may not reflect reality. But here's the thing for us. It is it, it does give us a sense of certainty. It does give us a sense of stability. If I know what to expect, I don't have to be afraid of the unknown. The unknown can be scary, right? This goes back to evolution. If I'm out someplace uh, and I'm dealing with survival issues, if I'm going into a, let's say I'm, I'm exploring new land or territory, I don't know what kind of predators are out there. Well, back home, I knew what kind of predators were there and I knew how to deal with those kinds of predators, right? I mean, it's just like if you grew up in the same place your whole life, you have a certain climate, you have certain things that you need to know, that you know how to do, and if you move to a different climate, you don't even necessarily know the kind of things that might be a threat. So one of the things that's always uh, interesting to me, uh, growing up in Colorado, some of you that are, you know, in a colder, worse climate up north, you know, if you live in Minnesota or Wisconsin or Illinois, uh, you might be able to relate to this. Um, but we get blizzards here, right? And so you learn how to drive in a blizzard. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people, because we've had so much, so many people moving in from out of state coming to Colorado, it never ceases to amaze me how people, even with the advanced advancement with cars, <laughs> uh, that don't understand uh, how to drive in the snow because they never had to do it. They came from, uh, you know, Southern California or something where they seldom saw it. They come here. They don't know exactly. They don't know what they don't know. And so oftentimes we see these cars, you know, I, I can tell you just 
you know, last year, twice last year, I saw cars fly by me in a snowstorm and spin out and go off the road. Uh, my wife had a experience where she saw someone flying by her in a snowstorm and they actually flipped the car, uh, down the road just in front of her. It's <clears throat> traumatic thing. I, everybody was okay in, in all of those instances. But you see what I'm saying? Like the unknown can be scary. Like if I move to Australia, like how many snakes do I have to be aware of? What kind of snakes are poisonous? You know, I hear they have spiders the sizes of dogs. I don't know if that's true. Um, but I don't know the predators that are there. See? That's the point I'm trying to make. Like we would, it feels safer to stay inside our certainty box, <clears throat> even if we're miserable in our certainty box. Uh, if if our lives are miserable because of the way we're living them, the way we're going about them every day, it feels safer because it's more certain than to step outside of ourselves or step outside of the information that we know about ourselves and get ourselves out into an area of uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen. And that's great. That's where you want to be. That's kind of the sweet spot because if you don't know what's going to happen, then guess what? You are primed for change. You are on the edge of self-improvement. You are on the edge of self-healing when you step out into the unknown. But the unknown can also be scary. You could be on the edge of falling flat on your face. You could be on the edge of things getting worse for you instead of better for you. But one thing is certain, you cannot get to change on any level of your life until you get to some aspect of facing the unknown and confronting your fears of the unknown. So let me finish up by giving you some practical things about this. Number one, realizing that your memory is malleable, your memory is emotional, and your memory is not always verifiably accurate to reality. Your story that you tell yourself, in other words, is just that. It is just a story. And it is either a resourceful and empowering story that you're telling yourself, or it is an unresourceful and disempowering story that you're telling yourself. And if, especially for Christians, I want to say this, I want to emphasize this. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if it's true or not true. It really doesn't matter if it's true or not true. In other words, if you're sitting there saying, well, I know this information is accurate. Like I was terrible. Maybe you're relating to what I'm saying. I was terrible at math and I went back and I looked at my grades and I looked at my scores and I was terrible at math. Okay, that's true. So you might have the same kind of feeling that I have. Your information may be accurate. Your memory may be accurate. My information and my memory may not be accurate. The, but it produces the same feeling. It produces the same emotion. Now, that's easily verified. But there's other stuff about us that is not easily verified, especially when it comes to relationships and what we think other people are thinking about us. Or how we think other people are experiencing their lives because we're projecting onto them how we're experiencing our lives. The better question to ask, the more important question to ask for your future. Like, like if we're stuck in, did this stuff happen? Is this stuff true? Are these feelings real? Is this information true about me? Then we're really looking back trying to discern the accuracy of the event. Did it happen this way or did it not happen this way? Is this true? 
or is this not true? Is this a real reflection of my potential or is this not a real reflection of my potential and my abilities? Um, and so we need to let go. We need to ask ourselves a more important question. The more important question is, is how you're feeling. Here's the question. How you're feeling in any context of your life or about anything about yourself. The story that you're telling yourself. Because remember, the, the mind, the language of the mind is thought. The language of the body is feeling. So is how I'm feeling about this person, situation, or myself, this area of myself, is it empowering me? Is it resourceful in this situation? Is it serving me? Is it improving my life? Or is it not assisting me? Is it not helping me? Is it not supporting me? Is it not empowering me? Is it not resourceful? The story that I'm telling myself, is it limiting me? Is it keeping me in depression? Is it keeping me in anxiety? Or is it giving me inspiration? Is it empowering me? Is it helping me to feel better about myself? Is it helping me to move forward? And if you look at it from that perspective and you ask yourself, is this serving me? Is this resourceful? This thought or this feeling or both, this state that I'm in, is it serving me? Is it resourceful? Is it not serving me? <clears throat> and is it unresourceful? And if it's not serving you and it's unresourceful, then I think that becomes something that we want to work on in order to change, that we want to work on in order to change. So that's the first thing. Number one, it's all information. Your sense of self is all information. It's all been programmed into you. Your sense of self is a programming. And that programming can change. It's all information, but it's not all accurate information. And so you can decide which information you want to act on and which information you don't want to act on. But you have to ask yourself, am I being informed in a way that's empowering me, setting me free, giving me peace, making me happy? helping me to feel resourceful, or is it informing me in a way that's creating limitations, that's creating anxiety for me, that's creating depression for me, that's creating hopelessness and powerlessness and helplessness for me. And you can get off that treadmill. You don't have to keep telling yourself the same story. Now, your stories and your feelings are connected, and we tend to try to avoid these negative feelings about ourselves instead of going into them. And you will never change anything that you don't confront. You will never change anything that you don't face. In uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a saying, you have to feel it to heal it. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to let it define you. That doesn't mean you have to feel it and stay there. <laughs> if you can understand that this feeling is unpleasant, <clears throat> And it's just information and allow yourself to feel it. And then how is it informing you? How is it preventing you from acting? Uh, that is kind of the first step. You have to stop avoiding these things. Now, the second thing or third thing or fourth thing, I don't know where I'm at in my list. <laughs> I forgot that short term memory. That's a short term memory problem. Uh, so. The next thing is try and disconnect the feeling from the story that you're telling yourself. So the way I would do this, if I have an unpleasant feeling, I would go into the feeling by noticing the sensory perceptions of the feeling that I'm having in my body. I'm going to say that again. I would go into the feeling 
by noticing the sensory perceptions that I'm having in my body with that feeling and identify, maybe just sit down and make a list, what are those sensory perceptions? Don't identify it as an emotion yet. Don't identify it as a belief yet, but simply mapping out the feeling. So, for example, uh, when I think about math, Right. What's the feeling? I'm very tight up in the solar plexus, tight in the solar plexus. I'm feeling some tension up here. I'm feeling sort of a buzzing around my head because I'm wanting to check out because the subject of math has come up. So I would write down, you know, tension in the solar plexus, tension up in the shoulders, a sensation of buzzing around the head. Just mapping out those sensory, what what that's going to do for you is, number one, it's going to make that emotion not quite as scary because it's not loaded with all the story, with all the information that I've been telling myself. Usually what will happen is that feeling will get activated and then go on this treadmill about the stories that I tell myself, layering meaning after meaning. Yeah, I'm not good at math. Uh, I probably had dyscalculia and they didn't identify it. Um, that's a real weakness. I'm an intelligent person, except when it comes to having to deal with numbers and you just, boom, just on that treadmill. When you're mapping out just the sensory information of the emotion, you can't be thinking about your story at the same time. So you realize, okay, I'm tight in my solar plexus. So what? My heart's getting elevated. So what? I can actually feel my pulse increasing here. See, the more you pay attention to the sensory inputs in your body, and you just chart those out. But so what? I mean, my heart rate increases if I walk, if I go up the stairs, if I run, if I work out, my heart rate increases. Um, so what if I've got a little bit of tension or a little bit of a feeling of a pit in my stomach? It's not that big a deal. It's just a feeling. It's just an emotion, right? And then I'm disconnecting from the story. That's a really important part. Because the story is just going to keep reinforcing the belief. The story is just, it's its like you can think about the thoughts are food. That emotion is feeding. Come on, give me give me more information. Give me more uh, negativity from the mind so that I can feel these feelings. Because I know these feelings and I know this about myself and this certainty uh, feels good. And in, in actual fact, the body can become addicted to stress. It can become addicted to that little bit of adrenaline rush that we get when we get stressed out. And it can start craving it kind of like a drug. So it's like I'm going up into my head like it's sort of a internal dope dealer, if you allow me to talk about it that way. And I'm sucking it for that negativity because I'm, I've become dependent upon that adrenaline, right? So then I can just be in those feelings, disconnect, and then I can begin to tell myself something different. I can begin to send different information down into the into the body. Uh, maybe the information I might pick would be soothing information. Like that soothing information might be, okay, so what? So I have uh, an elevated heart rate, elevated pulse rate, pit in my stomach, uh, sort of a buzzing around my head. Um, but that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just uncomfortable feelings. 
I'm okay. See, I'm sending that information to myself. It's just uncomfortable for a moment, and I'm okay. And then maybe take a deep breath and just experience the feeling in your body. See, completely disconnected from the story. Giving yourself some nurture, giving yourself some affirmation. Completely disconnected from the story, the memory information that I've been telling myself about that feeling. And then after a while, yeah, it begins to subside a little bit. Begins to crest, begin to elevate and then come down a little bit. And then I'm just with that feeling. And then that's a great time to send myself some affirmations, some self-love. <laughs> to, <clears throat> um, you know, it's okay. I didn't miss out on anything. I'm happy with the life path that I chose. Um, it's not too late if I want to do something, if I want to improve my skills in math and that kind of thing. There's no better time than to do it than now because we have access to Internet courses. I mean, hell, you can take a Harvard business course on YouTube um, if you want to. You know, there's so many different things. So now, see, that's that's a more empowering story than I'm telling myself. It's not too late. If I want to sharpen and improve in these areas, I have access to information. I can get that information. I can do that if I want to. See what I'm saying? And in that way, I begin to reprogram. But here's the point. You have to take time to do this every day. If I just do this today uh, and I wake up tomorrow and I don't reinforce it with something, I don't continue to do the work, this sort of internal work, then I'm not going to build reproducible memory that I can act on in my present for my future. See what I'm saying? Um, this is why the law of attraction, they tell you to visualize. They tell you to get the feeling, to visualize the future that you're going to have, to visualize your goals, to get the feeling that it's already happened. It's not even so much that you're making anything magically happen in that sense of cause and effect, but you are creating a new pattern, a new belief, a new image about yourself and you're placing it, you're handing it off, you're creating a new memory. So if I were to imagine, let's say I want, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, I've never been to Hawaii. Let's say that I want to uh, imagine a trip to Hawaii and I sit there and I just think about pictures that I've seen or I go find pictures that I've seen and I think about what it would feel like to be there uh, what it would feel like to be on the beach, what it might smell like, what the colors might look like, the feeling of relaxation that I might have. And I start to recreate that in my mind. Now I have a memory of a future that hasn't happened yet. I have a memory that I've created because I've put all the information in it of a future that hasn't happened yet. And then that, if I do that often enough, that becomes a part of my Self, my sense of self, and now a trip to Hawaii is going to feel more possible, more probable. Why? Because as far as my emotions are concerned, 
I've already done it. I've already been there and done that. So if I've done it once, I can do it again. So just some suggestions for you. Um, somebody said salt California people. How do you know that's, that's what we think? You must be, says Facebook user. You must be one of my people in Colorado. Um, oh, I wanted to say this. I used a simple illustration about how I felt about math. Because it doesn't have to be big traumas that limit us or that create a unpleasant sense of self for us. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, some kind of horrible abuse that happened to me as a child or um, some tragic event that happened in my family when I was a teenager. Um, but I, I will say. Uh, start with something small. Don't try to do this on your, on the biggest thing in your life right now. Um, because it's relatively easy. I can go in and feel that discomfort over this because it's not as big a deal as maybe some other things that might or might not have happened in my life. And so again, I, I'm just putting this information out because, uh, if you take on something that's really big by yourself, um, I don't want to say that you can't do it, but just be aware that the degree of unpleasantness is going to be much stronger. And so, therefore, it can be more dysregulating. And if it's more dysregulating, that can have a larger impact upon your life as a whole. And so uh, start with something simple, something small. Um, but simple and small can have a huge impact, right? And so that's why I use that illustration. But I also have to put out the disclaimer um, that if you've had a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of shock trauma, a lot of complex trauma, and you know that about yourself, or you just know that I'm not, I'm going to be too dysregulated if I go into this feeling, don't dysregulate yourself um, and put yourself through that. That's where I would suggest that you get with a friend, um, really, a, a trauma-informed therapist is the best way to go to address that, but I realize not everyone has access to that. Um, I want to create some more materials along these lines. Um, eventually, I'm going to get there, I promise. Um, so this person says, I thought I was good at math. I thought I wasn't good at math at all until the first year of middle school when the counselor took me into his office and told me that I got a very good score on my math finals the previous year. Good for you that you had that person in your life. Um, he bumped me up to a more advanced class, and I became a math wizard. That's an awesome story. Um, the extroverted intuition function makes it hard to remember well. Uh, let's see. Um ENFP and ENTP kind of fits you too. Yeah, it depends on my mood, to be honest, whether I'm uh, hitting all of those more internal processes like intuition and feeling and perception or whether I'm uh, the, the thinker. Yeah, the thinker feeler definitely on the, on the cusp there. Yeah, Daryl Carlson says it's never too late to have a chappy, ha, to have a happy childhood. Mark says most of my subconscious programming is garbage. Welcome to the club, Mark. Um, I think a lot of us can say that. Uh, 
let's see. I'm noticing that if the center point of the story I'm telling myself is my happiness, resourcefulness, etc., there is clarity. I know what to do. But if the center point is God, as in the sky God, that we said in religious spirituality was the only center that mattered, not me, then things get really fuzzy. That's a really good, that's from somebody on Facebook, that's a really good point um, to make. No pun intended there because, you know, you're talking about center point. So, all right, so. Uh, if you're a football fan, uh, if you're a KC Chief fan, um, enjoy it. Um, <laughs> never know when it'll come around again for you, although with that team, it'll probably be next year. Um, so I'm rooting for the 49ers, but I hope you guys have a great day. If you're watching this by replay, thank you for watching it. Thank you for commenting. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, please subscribe. If you want to support my work, there is a link to a PayPal account you can make a donation to the ministry in the paypal account um, and help us that would help me to be able to create more content and keep it free for people on the internet um, otherwise have a wonderful day thank you for taking your time out with me i really appreciate it and i'll be back with you next